Welcome to another episode of Pat and the Fat Man, where we like to talk about movies, sports, and whatever else we feel like. I'm Pat. And I am the Fat Man. The Fat Man. Today, we are continuing our journey through the 1984 cult classic, Red Dawn. Wolverines! Wolverines! You know, we have a tendency to do cult classics, I'm noticing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what's the second word in that phrase? Classic. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's a first word. (laughs) (laughs) First word being cult. Yeah, but when you say cult, people think you're crazy. I mean. Yeah. (laughs) They don't need to know that. Jeez. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> don't make it too easy for him I didn't realize this was 1984 that's the year after I was born so I, I wouldn't have seen this till maybe a decade or more after the movie came out hmm. well I didn't see it until I was like in high school and it was on TNT <laughs> so that was like a good what 20 years no not 20 I meant Pat Dude, <laughs> <laughs> so between 14 and 18 years after the movie came out it's interesting then it was remade in 2012, but I never saw the remake. So where were we in the film? Bud just told Danny to piss in the radiator. <laughs> that's right. And that's where we stopped. And then so then the scene jumps to night. It's clearly night at this point. And we see a Huey helicopter flying over the city, over the town of uh, Calumet, Colorado. It's supposedly the same Huey from before that saved the day and let them, you know, escape into the mountains via Patrick Swayze's truck. Or Jed, I guess. Right. And the commies have like fully invaded the town. They got tanks and everything. And once again, this lone Huey with apparently rocket launcher pods on it is just strafing the town. <laughs> yeah. It, uh, it does kind of show the, the real usefulness of air superiority, which is like a real thing. Um, <laughs> having air superiority is pretty solid. And kind of the usefulness of, or the uselessness of shooting at it with conventional weapons, like a pistol or a... Right, because the one guy is like shooting at it with a, with a shoulder-mounted rocket, and I guess he misses, even though the thing is like literally flying at rooftop. So, I mean, like you just have to be like a half second ahead of it, and you'd probably nail it. <laughs> yeah. I wonder how much of the budget of the film was blown on that, on this Huey. But so either way, so you, you, you get like the whole town is just an utter bloody chaos. Yeah, like like it's frontline warfare, you know, urban warfare. Very similar to the same kind of scene we saw at the very beginning of the invasion with the school. There's, you know, army men running around kind of randomly shooting at stuff. There's a concentration of shooting at the Huey. And then we see our primary villain enter the scene. Yes, Colonel Ernesto Bella. Cuban Colonel Bella. Colonel Bella uh, walks in the stream and, and he's just immediately takes charge, right? He starts telling people, okay, you need to cordon off this street over here. And one guy comes up to, hey, we got, you know, Yankee tanks coming in. We don't know what to do. We don't have our night vision anymore. And so, yeah, the colonel starts giving directions, like, you know, typical, like insurgent stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah, you know, like this is how you take care of tanks. <laughs> anti-aircraft over here we need you know he just he he basically comes in and just sort of takes over Mm. like he's he's the guy right so very much the guy now in charge sort of the central focus of like the bad guys i guess are being led by this by this guy and also it's interesting because you know the invasion force that we saw at the school they look like a bunch of white guys, I guess. 
is the best way to pull it. Or potentially Russians. And, you know, I don't really remember if you could hear much of what they said or if they were yelling, but it didn't strike you as South American. And then in this scene, that is all played up, right? This colonel, I guess he's Cuban or he's Nicaraguan or something, and his troops are all a South American. One of the geopolitical concepts at the time concerning communism was that it was going to be a domino effect. Right. If you let one country in a region or on a continent or whatever become communist, then it would domino effect onto other countries in the region. And so that it was some of the justification for at least the, given to the public for wars like the Vietnam War, the Korean conflict, the although the Korean conflict was a whole different mess unto itself. Yeah. But, <laughs> Basically, all these little wars or various governments that the U.S. government backed, especially in South America, South and Central America, in order to fight communism so that, you know, we didn't end up with some sort of communist domino effect. Now, whether or not that ever would have happened or played out, that's a real kind of puzzler for historians and for geopolitical thinkers and whatever. But the reality is that's sort of the basis of what what happened here. Like the the whole this is the coming home feeling of the statement we got at the very beginning, which is which was, you know, the United States stands alone. That and you know, obviously the Cuban forces were working with the Russians. I mean, right, right. But that's what you get. Like you get this. It's a multinational force that's invaded the United States, right? So it's a it's a whole bunch of other communist countries who are attacking. Uh, the United States of America. So you you get the like the domino effect has happened, right? The rest of the world has effectively become communist, more or less, and they're now attacking the United States. Right. The air quotes mean bad guy because there's a couple of them. We'll get to that later, but he's got his own like whole story arc, right? And a growth as a character, right? Which yet again you find somehow the director stumbled into like a good movie like <laughs> it's just like how did you do that <laughs> you know what happens with his character development later on sort of gets planted here like he comes on the scene you know as this i'm running the show and these are my guys and i'm the the generalissimo or whatever like it's all supposed to be organized right like this isn't how a good military action is supposed to be because like he calls it he's like this is a madhouse and it's like huh it's, you somehow thought this was going to be better it, it's a little strange <laughs> yeah and and like you said like he's talking like he's running in an insurgent force and not an invasion force right it's a, a different sort of thing but yeah and then it switches tracks because after he's done giving them the instructions on how to take out the tanks coming in from from the east, he turns to the Russian guy and says, all right, now you need to go to the sporting goods stores and look up all these files, you know, look up all these these permits of people who own guns so we know who owns the guns. Yeah. Which isn't something that an insurgent really cares about. You know, that that's somebody who's who's looking to take control. <laughs> Right. That's the that's the invasion force. So, you know, round up everybody who's got guns because they could fight us off. So, right. And that is just a very brief introduction to the bad guy. And if, yeah, again, it's to establish that he's the intelligent one. <laughs> it's funny because I think a lot of people in the, the modern gun control being a popularized thing, we should all argue about. And honestly, I'm a little, a little hesitant to make any comments on, on it at all because how many people have been banned from Patreon just for having views of any sort. Um, but I think a lot of people would, would see that today and go, oh, yeah, this is, you know, anti-gun control and 
and you know it's anti you know keeping a a list of of who owns guns and everything and i'm like uh, in that day and age it probably wasn't (laughs) it's not was it wasn't the meaning of that that line that line was yeah this is what an invading force would do Right. Well, here's the other part, too, though. Even without the files, they were going to kick in every door and search every house. Yes. That's also what an invading force is going to do. They're not going to just go, we're only going to go to that house and the house. No, they're going to kick in every single door and check everything. (laughs) Yeah. They're just going to be more prepared for the doors that they think have guns. Right. One of the ways to figure that out is to get to the registry. (laughs) Not going too deep into that, though. (laughs) Yeah, no, no. You know, I think if you have commentators on this movie commenting about it from, like, the perspective of this day and age, you might get a lot of comments about that line. Mm -hmm. The reality is that's not what the line was in there for like the director. No, but I don't think anybody involved. Well, I'm sure they got some of those comments then too. I mean, yeah, I mean, it was the eighties though. Nobody cared about anything. (laughs) 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 Why then it was the eighties and I didn't care anymore. Nobody noticed. (laughs) They were doing so much cocaine. That's right. After that brief, we just get a nice, um, Vista shots of the woods and then our, would be protagonists. We'll call them protagonists because they're not our heroes yet. Our protagonists uh, sitting up camp in the woods. What is a hero, Bruce? (laughs) (laughs) Just a man, really. Just a man. (laughs) A man of his time. (laughs) And if you folks don't get that reference, go back and listen to our other podcast. You will find it in one of them. (laughs) That's right. I'm going to make you listen to them all. (laughs) Yeah, you should listen to them all, or at least most of them. (laughs) But I digest. (laughs) Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Uh, So our protagonists are are setting up camp. Uh, They haven't set up a... It looks like they just got there. Like they just literally just dropped everything out of the truck. Like it took them all night to get there. Right. They got to a point and they just everything out of the truck and they set up a place to have a fire and they lit a fire and they're, if you don't know what you're doing there, it, it kind of gets established that Jed and Matt are experienced campers yep. of some variety. We learn later that they're also experienced hunters. They're experienced outdoorsmen effectively, but they're experienced campers because they've got a fire going. And they've got a lot of the stuff out of the truck and they're sort of setting up camp. And then sort of this is the point at which, okay, like the adrenaline's wearing off. Like we, we've gotten to a point where I'm not running, you know, none of us are running for our lives. We can't hear continuous gunfire going off. It's time to like assess the situation and what is going on. Right. This is like that sort of Lord of the Flies kind of moment, yeah. you know, where the hierarchy is being established and everyone's deciding on who they're going to be, you know, in this group. Right. And, and you know, kind of the foundation for what happens to all the group members is sort of laid here. Although I, I honestly think it's very interesting how that plays out with each different character. Right. You have sort of the getting there, the initial like baseline is that Jed's in charge. And this is number one, because he has the truck and number two, because he's the oldest and number three, because he has an automatic like right-hand man, the AKA his brother. Right. Mm-hmm. So you, you, if you have a, I don't know how to put it, but we see this from the, like, we have little kids playing with each other, you know, in our group. Mm-hmm. And if they're siblings, like if they're all trying to figure out what they want to play, like the siblings will all form like a voting block. <laughs> effectively so you'll have like you know two or three of the girls or or you know the siblings will say we want to play this game 
then they outvote everybody else because they form a block. So you know, <laughs> kind of the same thing going on here between Jed and Matt, because Matt respects Jed because he's his older brother. Jed so far appears to be the one who knows most about what they're doing, a.k.a. He picked them up in the truck. He drove out to like nowhere. Right. But they were still like questioning things. You know, like you got Danny, who is still the scared kid. He's like, you know, how will I know if I'm hiding? How will my parents are finding uh, will find me? I, you know, I don't want to hide. I want them to be able to find me, you know. And then there's, you know, Daryl, who's like the uh, the school body president. So he thinks he's naturally the politician that, you know, being high school, you know, student body president <laughs> means you're the leader, you know. <laughs> Yeah. So that's basically how it kicks this whole scene off is, mm-hmm. is Daryl sort of says, OK, well, we got to figure out who's in charge now. And I think it should be me. Well, actually, what he says is, you know, as student body president, I think we should turn ourselves in. OK. And then Dan, Danny, as the scared one, jumps up and goes, yeah, I second that. And then Jed goes, you two shut up and sit down. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. and it's at that point where even Daryl's like, oh, maybe I'm not in charge, but I'm still going to push it. And he goes, well, you know, you're not the quarterback anymore. The big game, you know, we can go where we want. And, he's, you know, he tells him, no, you're going to sit down. You're going to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's a little scuffle there. You know, like I said, Lord of the Flies moment, trying to figure out who's who's in charge, you know, and, and who's going to be you know, making the decisions on, on wh- who and what they do. And it settles down, you know, and Danny explains and goes, look, this isn't a game anymore. People are down there dying and risking their lives. Danny's like, well, what about your, your, your parents? You know, what about them? And he's like, listen, I don't know what happened to them, but I'm alive. That's the way they'd want it. So I'm going to stay here like they would want me to and stay alive. <laughs> and for the rest yeah. of you want to go, go ahead, grab your and go. But I'm staying right here. It's kind of. Yeah, he's sort of laying down, okay, look, there's there's a little bit of a scuffle. There's, you know, there's challenge of the leadership. He's like, look, if you want to go back, go back. Mm-hmm. But, like, we're out here, and when we're out here, you're either with me or go somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> we took all this stuff from our parents' place, right? All the, the truck is mine. The fire I've just made is mine. Matt's with me. Like, if you want to stay out here, if you want to go turn yourself in, you can, but this isn't a game anymore. We're out here where our parents would want us to be. <laughs> and he sort of just makes his point. I want to say Robert and Aardvark kind of go over to his side and then Danny reluctantly and then and then eventually Daryl. Yep. It sort of settles. And But see, this uh, the scene just is done real well, I think, in general. <laughs> it's a bunch of scared kids and teenagers, right? So, like, right. you know, tempers and... and emotions flaring up and we don't know if our parents are alive and I don't know what to do. It's that moment when you're a kid and you're pretend or you're a young teenager and you're pretending to be an adult to making an adult decision. Right. You know, you know, it's all for show and <laughs> you know, you don't really have a clue on what you're talking about, but you know, you're thinking like, this is what an adult would do. And that's why they had their argument and then they make up. And I'm sure it was completely awkward, but like if it were a real event. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is how it would play out. This scene is just like how it would play out. <laughs> like if you if you had this going, like there wasn't any that didn't. None of the dialogue seemed forced. None of it seemed unreasonable. None of it seemed like crazy. It all seemed like, yeah, this is what would happen if you took a bunch of kids who were basically in an invasion scenario and then had to run for the hills. Well, they establish kind of the leadership hierarchy because, you know, Jed effectively becomes the leader and Matt's his right hand man. There's sort of a trust hierarchy built on how quickly 
everybody gets around to the Jed side of the ball. They figure out their hierarchy and they sit down next to the fire and and Jed goes, you know, we've been up in these mountains all our lives. Our dad's taught us to hunt and fish. We could stay up here, you know, forever if we need to. We could survive. And one kid goes, well, how long will that be? And he goes, and then you hear a jet engine fly overhead. And Jed goes, until we no longer hear that noise. Cut to another Vista image and the word October. So apparently some time has passed. Who's to say if it's been a full month or a couple of weeks? I'm trying to remember. Is there a, is there a scene where Matt and Jed and Matt hug? Yeah. Oh, yeah. At the beginning of the camp scene. So and I thought that was pretty good, too. Like, it was sort of like, um, you know, there's a scene in Greece where the two guys, like, towards the end, they, they kind of, there's a fight earlier on, and then they end up, like, hugging each other. But they do it in this way that it's sort of like, you know, they they kind of punch each other a couple times and then hug because, like, that was the only way to do that. You couldn't just walk up to another guy and hug him. That would be. <laughs> they did, like, the handshake kind of, you know, the, the secret handshake and then a hug. <laughs> yeah. You know, I thought it was a good sort of portrayal of how, like, emotionality would play out among guys, you know, brothers. Mm-hmm. In this kind of this this scene, yeah, I, I thought it was pretty good across the board. The the fear, you know, I, I just thought it was really good emotional portrayal of you know the fear, the anger, the um, you know the difficult emotions that people would deal with in this scenario, and like how that would come out and how that would interplay. So, yeah, good scene. They're all good scenes somehow. <laughs> somehow. A few weeks pass at least. We're into October now. We start off with uh, the boys are gone out hunting. There are a lot of uh, good New Mexico, Colorado messages. Jeb, Matt, and uh, I want to say... It's Robert, Jed, and... I think this is Robert, Jed, and Matt, right? This is the hunting yeah. scene. Yeah, Robert's the one shooting the gun, and he shoots the deer. They come up to the kill, and uh, Jeb's teaching them, you know, you never shoot twice. You shoot twice, and the enemy will know where you're at, you know. And my dad taught us that from Jebediah Smith and, and whatnot. Since it was uh, Robert's first time hunting, they told him that, it, you know, to be a man, to be a hunter, you had to drink a deer's blood. So they made him, they cut open the deer and filled a little tin cup full of blood and had him drink it. Yep. Ultimately, this scene is more or less Robert's initiation into manhood, effectively. Right. Jed and Matt make the, the comment that their dad did this with them. And this would have been so, you know, the dad bringing the kids out onto a hunting trip and, and quote unquote, blooding them, which is like effectively what this would be. This kind of a thing now, definitely not sanitary. <laughs> Don't really want to be drinking a wild animal's blood. You know, it comes from a number of different um, traditions. <laughs> They've been out in the woods for a couple of weeks now. I think sanitary went right out the window. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, killing an animal, dealing with the blood, blood has always had sort of a mystical kind of a property to it. It's the life right. force of the animal, the life force. You know, it was in... in You know, the Judeo-Christian mindset, especially the Jewish one, like it was forbidden to drink blood because blood is the life force belonged to God. And so doing that was sort of like you're treading into God's territory there and you don't want to do that. It sort of came along into the hunter culture at some point. But ultimately what this is, is a coming of age or becoming a man sort of a, a ceremony, which, you know, that's something men... And people in general have always needed the whole, you know, the ceremony that sort of breaches them from childhood or adolescence into adulthood. You see the, you know, the scout version of this is called the arrow of light ceremony, 
where you have uh, kind of the Cub Scouts who want to move on to the Boy Scouts, you know, or at the end of Cub Scouts go through this Arrow of Light ceremony. But there's a ceremony for this kind of thing in almost every culture. Now, it's not terribly prevalent today, which I think is actually detrimental to our culture. So because, you know, lots of people are growing up without realizing they're adults. which is problematic in a lot of respects but that's what this is effectively is robert you know being brought into you know manhood in a way that jed and matt like know how to do like they're because they're as far as they know like they're the culture now on top of that you have this sort of robert being brought into the inner circle of Jed and Matt's confidences coming out of the last scene, Jed is like in charge now. Right. And he's in charge of the whole group. And obviously Matt is in his confidence. We see both from the interaction during that, the camping scene, but just the obviousness them being brothers. And so Robert is now sort of part of the core group. Whereas like Danny and Daryl and Aardvark are all sort of in lesser orbits around Jed, who's kind of at the middle of, of running the group. And so this is again, really well done. Like, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is this is both how I could see this easily playing out in real life and the growth of both Matt and Jed and Robert all sort of, as far as the movie is concerned, start at this scene. And we get to see sort of like what happens with that growth with the three characters, the different directions they take themselves over time, starting from this point. This is what you would say is the the, the spark that started the moment of our protagonists becoming the heroes. Right. This is okay. They're fending for themselves, right? And they're able right. to fend for themselves. Like they're not just eating, you know, Twinkies and hoes or whatever. <laughs> right. They're killing the deer. And then, you know, to be honest, if it was, uh, if it was me enforcing a, like a coming of age ritual on somebody, I would have them like do the rest of the work because dressing a deer <laughs> is not a lot of fun. <laughs> it's not, but at the same time, like uh, the that fur and that skin, I mean, done right. I mean, that could be really useful. Oh yeah, no, I mean, so there's a whole there's a whole thing like involved in that now mm-hmm. um, with them. You know, they kill the deer. They need the meat. They need the the fur. The you know whatever they can get out of the deer. Like you know, use every part of the buffalo. Kind of a a deal because that's where they're at. The scene is very compact. It doesn't last very long, but there's so many different things that are portrayed in the scene and then come out of the scene because of, of the, what happens in the scene. Well, yeah. And I think that's what this movie does a really good job of. You have these big time, you know, character development moments, and then you have the rest of the movie, just little moments of stuff happening. And then the movie. Yeah. And pacing wise, they just do a really good job of interspersing everything together. So you never feel like, Oh, I'm stuck in character development. Hell, or I'm, (laughs) (laughs) or that it's just, you know, a never ending action moment of, you know, war. (laughs) Mm -hmm. This is possibly one of the best scenes in the movie from a character development place, Mm -hmm. but we're coming up on another one. That's even more important. (laughs) (laughs) So after they're done, Drinking the blood and Robert going, hey, that wasn't that bad. You know, he's just like, yay, I did it. Come to there around the campfire again. And um, Daryl is emptying the last soup can. He's like, that's the last of it. And, you know, there's a little argument. You know, I was like, you know, well, we still got plenty of meat. Just the stuff that you shot. Yeah, where hamburgers come from, you know. Right. Yeah. (laughs) 
Oh, Danny. <laughs> why do we have to kill cows? Don't people know meat comes from the grocery store? I just, oh. <laughs> well, the well, the better part was is like he goes, he goes, you know, where do you think hamburgers come from? And Danny goes, well, nobody shoots them. It's like, okay, not really oh. sure you really want to use that as the winning part of your argument. <laughs> <laughs> I think if you knew, you'd think that shooting them would be the most humane point, the humane thing they do to them. Yeah, but I digest. <laughs> <laughs> just a cow probably <laughs> yes <laughs> sick bastard <laughs> but the dissenting group of of people so like that's where you also you kind of see this is like daryl's like the leader of the dissenting argument you know he he speaks up yeah he's always gonna be nipping at jed's heels right just the the counter argument you know just the 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 voice of reason as it were you know like hey well what about this and you know him and his group were like we need actual supplies and we need to know what's going on right it's always good like in a group dynamic to have somebody who's willing to stand up to like the leader so that the especially a small group dynamic especially and the leader is just sort of winging it on its own because, you know, then you end up with one guy making the the calls all the time. And even if he's wrong, it's a good portrayal of this kind of dynamic playing out. And, you know, in this case, Daryl ends up being right. You know, it's been somewhere between, you know, a week and a month. Maybe they don't know what's going on anymore. Right. So recon is probably a good idea. Right. And Jed actually agrees. He goes, then it's settled. You know, tomorrow we... We go into the town. So we go to the next day, and you're starting to walk through the ruins of war. Like, you know, World War Three has come and gone. You know, this is the aftermath. Tanks and jeeps and things turned over. Craters from, you know, mortar shells and things like that in the ground. The group's climbing all over them. <laughs> you know, because that's the smart thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's climb all over the exploded army vehicles. There's no way there's anything... Artillery in there that hasn't accidentally exploded already. <laughs> they could accidentally kill us. No way that would be possible. And then, you know, they look at town, they see the tanks, you know, from a distance, and with binoculars, they could see tanks everywhere and whatnot. So they do the smart thing, which is, you know, decided to hide the guns and just walk into town like they've been there the whole time. Well, and so you get this, like, they're walking in the fields and stuff, but you can see like a road behind them Mm -hmm. and there's cars on it. Right. Well, it's in front of them. The road's in front of it and it's a highway going into the, it's a highway that's crossing the town. Yeah. Well, I'm saying like the way it's shot, you see them in the foreground, in the background, you have the road and the town or whatever you can see of it, but the road there and there's cars driving on the road. And that's, I think that's one of the comments the kids make is like, Oh, Hey, there's people there. There's cars. Like, you get the feel from the tone that, oh, things have back to normal. We can come back. Like, there's this hopefulness to it. Right. But then they take a closer look and they're like, well, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, especially because, like, Matt and Jed don't recognize the tanks. Not that they necessarily would, but certainly the one kid doesn't know what, a, what you know, a proper tank looks like, you know, <laughs> what an American tank looks like. <laughs> right. The difference between, you know, the Abrams and, you know, whatever the, the commies are going to have. Right. And so the first scene you see of them coming into town is the bad guy, the the colonel, driving down right past our protagonist in a uh, convertible, being driven in a convertible car that's been spray painted with camo. 
Robert's like, oh, that's Daryl's dad's car. They're t- they took his car. <laughs> and so it's at this point that they're absolutely 100% sure that things are not back to normal. <laughs> and they're marveling at the tanks everywhere. Everybody's more like, okay, what's going on? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Barricades in front of business, uh, in front of like uh, government buildings and whatnot. And people sleep in the streets of debris tanks and anti-air guns and cannons all over the place. Yeah, soldiers walking around. And as they're crossing the street, they see one guy in there whispering to them, hey, hey, Billy, whatever. And the guy just ignores him and walks away and like, ooh, he was like, he was afraid to talk to us. <laughs> you get that, you know, things are very different in town. <laughs> right. So they step into a drugstore and walk up to the counter to a woman they know and you know, try to pass it off. Like, Hey, we need toothbrushes. And she's like, Hey, you guys got to get out of town. You know, they're looking for yeah. you. <laughs> and they all yeah, know. She looks you. up at them and is like, yeah, we don't have any, or you know, they're all, you know, you, you get the feeling that and the store looks kind of bare anyway. Right. Like it doesn't <laughs> like it's been looted. <laughs> yeah. And she's like, well, we don't really have any. And then she realizes who they are. She's like, you guys got to get the out of town. <laughs> run. <laughs> run. <laughs> <laughs> But she says it real low, like like they, like somebody could hear her, and Jed and, and company don't necessarily realize that, so they get a little loud, and she sort of quiets them down, and then, you know, makes a nod up to a, an overlook. Yeah, it's like the second story of this, like there were shelves up there too, but yeah, just a Russian soldier with a gun, like overlooking the place. <laughs> And you get to feel like this guy is obviously Russian, right? He's got the hat, he's got the coat, he's got the kind of gun, you know, the AK-47. He's <laughs> definitely <laughs> Russian. And so everybody is sort of just like being watched at this point is the is the overarching feeling you get. Jed's like, you know, asking like, hey, you know, where's my dad? I went by the shop and he wasn't there. I went by the house. Nobody was there. And she's like, well, they rounded up a bunch of people. They thought, you know, we're going to cause trouble people with guns. And they took him to the re-education camp, the, the, which he says is the drive-in theater. And as they're leaving, she says, you know, I, I pray for you guys. <laughs> like they're in really deep danger because <laughs> they are. Yep. So then the next scene, we're back to nighttime. And uh, it's the drive-in theater that's been turned into a prison camp with a voice uh, on the speakerhead just announcing the usual propaganda stuff, you know, the brainwashing kind of stuff, you know, yeah. anti-American stuff. <laughs> yeah, America, you know, evil capitalism is bad, you know, American imperialist pig dogs, you know. The, the, uh, the ideals of your forefathers have been, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. What you see is like I said, the double fence around this whole driving mm-hmm. theater. Which I got to say, if you were going to make a quote unquote re-education camp, the driving theater is probably you know not a bad call. <laughs> <laughs> it's already going to be fenced. You got the place to projector, <laughs> mm-hmm. but you see inside the camp, like it doesn't look very good. Like there's a lot no. of guys on the fence talking with people on the other side of the fence. Everybody looks dirty. It's Tire fires effectively or, or right, no tents to really speak of. <laughs> yeah, everybody's just sort of open to the elements. It's it's what you would expect from you know your typical concentration camp <laughs> of of an invading force who doesn't really care about the people they're invading. Right. So you had two fences with a with a kind of no man's land in between, like a short distance, and you know the prisoners lined up on their one side, the families on the other, trying to talk to each other. Jed and Matt are walking by the fence, and they stop and in a spot where they can uh, talk to somebody and say, "Hey, do you know my dad, Tom Eckert?" 
he goes, oh, Matt, you know, and he, he points out Matt first, Matt, Jed, and you're like, yeah, and Mr. Barnes, can you go get our dad? Sure. And then Robert times in, hey, along the way, if you could find my dad, so-and-so, uh, could you, you know, and the guy goes, yeah, I'll look for him too. I remember Robert's dad is the guy who owned the, the store where they took all the stuff from right. all the food and the bullets and, and whatnot. So Robert's concerned about his dad. Mr. Morris. Mr. Morris. Yeah. And so uh, they come back and uh, they're carrying Matt and Jed's dad, you know, or one guy is trying to hold him up. And uh, Matt and Jed's dad is played, or Tom Eckert is played by Harry Dean Stanton. If you don't know who Harry Dean Stanton is, you probably would know him from uh, the movie Alien. He's been in a bunch of other stuff, too. Like one of my favorites is he was in Down Periscope. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, this movie has somehow everybody in it. Right. <laughs> yeah. It, it's it's an awkward moment because it's very uh raw. Like, you know, like as men, like you know, their feelings they, they break down the, the, the strong machismo, you know, masculinity thing. Mm-hmm. You know, to talk to their dad and their dad to see his sons are still alive and whatnot. Although that he doesn't know what happened to Robert's dad. Right. And Mr. Morris, he's like, I don't know. That the Russians killed their mother. And so you have sort of a breakdown, you know, both Matt and Jed, you know, after they hear about their mother dying, mm-hmm. you can see they're pretty stricken. Yeah. And he tells, you know, hey, things are different now. You got to take care of each other. I know it was tough on you guys. You know, he explains, you know, why if, you know, you know, if he was hard on him, he did it for a reason. It was for this reason. Yep. There's kind of three really powerful things that come out of the scene is the fact that the father, Jed Matt's father, tells them that he loves them. You know, back in the 80s and, and prior to that, that wasn't something masculine culture was terribly okay with. <laughs> you know, him talking about when they were kids playing on the playground and that makes his dad break. <laughs> yeah. And basically them being able to, to be emotional around each other. Mm-hmm. But then the follow on to that is their dad telling them to, you know, don't cry anymore. Right. Don't you ever cry as long as you ever live. <laughs> yeah. Don't cry for me. You know, you got to take care of each other now. Don't cry as long as you live. And I'm like, well, that's not terribly great advice. <laughs> you know, <laughs> And then the way it ends with him, him telling them, okay, you got to go now, you know, because otherwise you'll get rounded up. Yep. And don't ever come back here again. And on their way out, he yells after them, avenge me. Which <laughs> like, so, <laughs> is so great. Like, like that's like the great, you know, like action hero, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. The medieval, you know, I shall be avenged. <laughs> But I mean, it, I honestly thought it was like it was good. Like that's probably what would happen <laughs> like, again. All of this was very, like I think, very true to life. The kind of thing you see when you have families broken up or or broken up like that in an invading force. That kind of a thing. And you know, I think the dad he wasn't in great shape when he got brought up to the fence in the first place. So he probably felt like he was on his last legs, anyways. And this was his last time to, to tell his sons pass on his wisdom and so you get you get a lot of a good stuff but you get a lot of huh <laughs> and then you get the final one which is avenge me you know whether or not that becomes kind of the keystone for the driver for matt and jed or not we don't really know necessarily but you definitely get the feel like this i don't know how to put it but the the things that come next appear to be more revenge driven than they appear to be freedom fighter driven and i Mm -hmm. think that 
becomes more so as time goes on. But because of the reprisals that happen, it basically forces them into revenge mode. So that, and this is sort of the whole this is how, you know, uprising movements get started. <laughs> kind of <a> thing. <laughs> so then once the boys walk away, we go back to daytime and they approach this uh Basically, it's a ranch. It's a small home, but it's a. You can tell it's like a ranch. Yeah, it's, it's outside of town. It's and it's somehow it seems like it's been relatively unaffected by the war mm-hmm. and more or less left alone. Which I'm not sure. Like this is a kind of a I believe button. I've got to push for this sort of, and then sort of not because I you know obviously stuff is going to get overlooked by the invading force. You know they've got their own problems to handle. They've got a war they're fighting and everything, so they can't like you said go kick down every door, right? But this place seems pretty still well put together. I don't know how to put it, but it doesn't seem like it It got ransacked in the way I would have expected it to get ransacked because there's no way a guy in a ranch in Colorado isn't a, isn't a gun owner. Like, <laughs> it's guaranteed he was on the list. I mean, bears, people. Bears. <laughs> like, they're a real thing you have to worry about when you don't live in the city. <laughs> When they get to the door, the guy who owns the place and find out that his name is Mr. Morris, you know, opens up, hey, it's you guys. What's interesting here, I got to say, is this is where you kind of see like uh, certain traditions, like, you know, in Southwest and in places where guns are a big, big thing, just as a way of life. He takes their guns and and makes sure that they're unloaded and, and puts them away, you know, and, like, and they give them to him. Like, that's the respectful thing and the normal thing to do is hand your gun to the, the homeowner and he checks it and yeah. makes sure it's clear and then puts it away. It's the Masons, by the way, not the Morrisons. Oh, no, Mason, I read it wrong. Morris is, is Robert's dad. And we right. find out what happened to Robert's dad in the course of this conversation. Morris, Mason, come up with some original names, please. Yeah. <laughs> hey, shut up. <laughs> it's not about you, you so Pat. <laughs> it's not about you, Pat. I think everything's about me. I think we all know that. <laughs> Whether or not it is, eh, who knows? But but either way, since we went to the town and all that we really found out was that the boys are being wanted by the communists and that uh, they're that the the Eckert's dad, you know, Jed and Matt's dad, is in the air quotes re-education camp. We f- kind of find out what's actually been going on since they ran and hid in the woods. Any guy tells him, well, we thought you were heading for F.A. And you go, what's F.A.? Free America. You know, you're he's like, you're 40 miles behind enemy lines. <laughs> occupied America. Right. And it's just interesting. They're having this like what you would think of as a stereotypical bunch of people visiting their older relatives, sitting down in the living room, talking with the grandmother effectively in the scenario, trying to drinks and you know lemon squares or whatever <laughs> soup and cornbread and being apologetic that there wasn't more and this is great like as she walks away from giving them soup mr mason brings uh jed um a bottle of whiskey <laughs> he's like here to keep you warm <laughs> yeah he's like well guess what you're pretty much a man now with all this stuff going on so you'll use this and then yep. well what's funny it's like this is a radio that was in a tin foil pan it looks like a bread pan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but it's a it's got a radio in it. Because uh, he was asking him, he was like, what were you guys doing fooling around in town? And he's like, we were just trying to figure out what's going on. So he goes, well, you know, here's a radio and here's some whiskey. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because, uh, you know, we had in the in the scene earlier with the, in the campfire scene, we find out, you know, the I guess the radio they had was busted. 
shot out by the the when they got shot at when they hit that road barricade. And the one guy is like, "Well, what about these?" Because he has the uh, his Walkman or whatever. <laughs> They're like, "That doesn't work. <laughs> like, you need it needs an actual radio." <laughs> so yeah, they get a radio. They get some whiskey. Um, they get information. And he tells them, you know, look, if you guys need something, you, you come here. You don't go to town anymore. And they go, well, why? And they go, well, you know, some things have been happening in, in town. You know, uh, people have been waking up with their throats slit. And they, some people are saying it's you. And they're like, what? <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> yeah. You see this, this sort of like uh, propaganda effectively. Mm-hmm. It would be on the... A useful propaganda tool, I guess, to tell the population, okay, you had some people disappear and they're, you know, in the woods and they're coming back and killing folks, which obviously Jed and the gang haven't done yet. But this now, like, so you have these these two sparks, right? You have Jed and Matt's a father, you know, yelling out, avenge me, right? Avenge me. Mm-hmm. And then you have Mr. Mason just saying, well, you know, some people have been showing up with their throat and it's, they're saying it's you. And so like that whole concept is now playing in their heads. <laughs> this whole, you know, how would we get vengeance on these people? Aha, that's how we would, <laughs> you know, kind of a thing. <laughs> yeah. And then that's when Robert chimes in, Hey, what about my mom and dad? And he said, well, the communists uh, killed your dad because they found a bunch of guns missing from his store and they made an example out of him for aiding gorillas. You know, just like, well, if we just took the stuff, he didn't help us, which isn't necessarily true. And that, those are kids trying to, you know, protect their, their parents without any real need to at this point. Yeah. But, you know, you know, guy goes, listen, make sure you guys remember this good. They did this to them because they were trying to make an example out of them. And if you need anything, you come here. Oh, and by the way, I have some family heirlooms. And he goes into the next room. The boys follow and picks up boards from the floor and there's two young women in there um, played by Leah Thompson and Jennifer Gray. Yeah. Her names are Jennifer Gray's Tony and Leah Thompson is Erica. We have um, Marty McFly's girlfriend and Ferris Bueller's sister. <laughs> well, no, Marty McFly's mother. Oh, you're right. Shoot, mother. Well, I guess they were boyfriend and girlfriend there for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's how Marty would say it. <laughs> Definitely, you know, <laughs> Lorraine. Lorraine, yeah, she was pretty into him, you know, for a while there. <laughs> that's another movie for another time for another podcast. <laughs> yes, it is. What do you mean, Doc Brown's not the villain? Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> The guy explains that they got away from the Russians who were trying to have their way with them. They hid out there in the the ranch. So then uh, Mr. Mason lets the boys take a couple of his horses and all five of them ride off back to the camp. Oh, yeah, that's right. The horses. That's how they got the horses. I forgot about that. Yep. Taking care of horses is tough. That's a lot to do. <laughs> I'm just gonna just gonna float that out there. Like you have to go find water, you have to go find the food. <laughs> but yeah, they take the horses and that becomes a primary mode of transportation because you know Jed's truck doesn't have gas anymore. Right. Which I mean it's all kind of assumed, but that, that makes the most sense out of the situation. So they get back to camp, they're listening to the radio about free America, and it's all code words, you know, like the chair is against the wall. John has a long mustache. They're all sitting there listening to this, and it's the first 
instance that they have of listening to anything from outside of Calumet and what's going on in the world. And as they're listening to this, the camera focuses on Leah Thompson's face. And she just says, you know, with a thousand mile stare, goes, you know, things are different now. And uh, Jennifer Gray comforts her. Now we've gotten into, okay, craziness happened. Now we understand what where we're at. So then we'll transition to our protagonists becoming heroes. Yep. So and we had a lot of basically character development set up, some character development occurring. Our cast of heroes are assembled. Yeah, the pacing is just sort of on point. Like it's just it's on point and it's realistic. <laughs> That's the crazy yeah, part. For a movie that really production wise isn't like, you know, outstanding. <laughs> I am absolutely certain they blew like all of their money on that the couple of helicopters they have <laughs> throughout the movie. <laughs> and all of the, the trucks and whatever that they put on the side of the road kind of a deal. Mm-hmm. It's a very low I mean, seemingly low budget film. It ends up being done just really, really well. Like I everything's shot well. The acting is done well. The emotionality of the actors, the portrayal of the characters, the dialogue, the the scenes, the pacing. It, it's just all, it's like, I don't know. I feel like it was all put together well, but the, the production values are so low. I just have a hard time believing it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just feel like the director just got super lucky. <laughs> <laughs> so that is uh, another episode of Pat and the Fat Man. We'd like to remind you that we do have a Patreon where you can support us, at least currently, and, uh, you know, figure a dollar a show or maybe 10 bucks a month or something. You do get exclusive content on our Patreon. So every month we try and put up something new there. Uh, we've got a website, patthefatman.com, as well as Pat the Fat Man on Facebook. And uh, we might be expanding to a couple other of the social medias. We'll see. We want to thank everybody for listening and your support. I'm Pat. I'm the Fat Man. Stay classy. Wolverines! I'm trying not to yell too loud so I don't burst uh, Shay's eardrums. Oh, God. (laughs) If we end up accidentally killing our editor, we want to make it because she died from laughing, not from hearing us. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Can't believe the last words I ever heard was Wolverines. (laughs) Wolverines. That's why she looks at you like that every time she sees you. <laughs> like she's going to murder me? Yeah, that's right. That's the one. <laughs>